Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. I'm sure that everyone in this room at some point was required to take some sort of literature class in high school. I don't know if they teach that in elementary necessarily or college. You had to take some sort of ele- or some sort of literature class. How many of you enjoy literature class? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you men, the hands were not as high. Uh, I got it. I got it. Reading is not my favorite, but it's good thing to know or to do. Obviously, good thing to know as well. You probably should be able to read. But perhaps in one of your literature classes, you read this story by Hans Christian Andersen entitled "The Emperor's New Clothes." You guys remember that story, The Emperor's New Clothes? For those of you that are not familiar with it, this story tells the uh, example or the, the, the story of an emperor who absolutely loved his clothes. He would go into the mirror with his outfit on and he would look at it. He would admire himself. He would enjoy the way he looked and his clothing. And so two con men figured out the emperor's weakness, and that obviously had to do with clothing. And so they went to the emperor one day, and they convinced the emperor that they had this new way of creating clothing that would be able to determine whether or not a person was fit for their job. And basically the concept behind it is they told the emperor that we will make you this outfit, and those of the people that are able to see this outfit will be able to let you know that they are the ones fit for their job. They were smart enough, and they're wise enough to be able to do their job. Anyone that does not see these clothes will basically tell you that they are not smart enough or wise enough to do their job. Well, the emperor being self-absorbed, of course, went for it, right? And so he had all these con men go and they, they created these clothing there. And one day the emperor did not want to go see the clothing himself because he was afraid that if he saw the clothing and or didn't see anything, that he actually indeed himself would be unfit for the job. And so he sent his wisest and most trusted minister. The minister goes and he sees the con men who basically were taking this loom and they were weaving nothing because they were conning them. They pocketed all the silk that was given to them for themselves to sell and make more money. And so literally they were weaving nothing. Well, the minister did not want to admit that he couldn't see the clothing because therefore he would admit that he wasn't fit for the job. And so he goes back to the emperor and he says, they are the most beautiful clothing that you've ever seen. Well, then the minister wanted to make sure that he wasn't crazy, and so he sent his other uh, servant to be able to go and see, and they came back with the same report. And so the emperor finally, after hearing all these reports, goes over to these con men, and he sees these con men finally finished with his outfit. Well, the emperor clearly cannot see anything that's happening at all. But the emperor didn't want to admit that because he would show that he was unfit for his job. And so the con men gave the emperor these clothes. He put them on. In essence, he was completely naked. He gets on his horse and he, parade, he parades through the town. Well, all the townspeople heard what was happening, and so none of them wanted to admit to the emperor that he didn't have any clothes on. So they all bought into the same thing, and they all pretended that he was wearing clothes. They all pretended to understand the same thing. And so one day, finally, this little boy, as he was watching the parade happen, this little boy in his honesty yells out, The emperor has no clothes on. He's completely naked. And just like that, the spell was broken. And everybody realized what had happened. There's two morals, to, several morals to that story. One of them being we have to be careful in buying into something and, and assuming something to be true when really it isn't. The other moral to that story is that the emperor was wearing his clothing. He took off his old clothing, but he failed to put on new clothing. He thought he put on something new, but he was walking around completely naked. 
In this Christian life, I often hear people say that they no longer go to the church or to this particular church because the church no longer makes them feel good. It no longer makes them feel apart. They don't feel connected to the church. Therefore, they feel as if the church or that particular church is no longer relevant. And what often occurs in those situations, right, is that they go around and they tell other people, and rather than the other people telling them that really the issue is is something that's going on in here, not every church is perfect. I understand there are some legitimate issues within churches, but sometimes it's the people within their own heart and failing to see the big picture. And so instead of actually addressing that, people just kind of look over it. And you see this often, and what's even worse is that churches end up creating more programs and other discipleship groups and other events in order to keep those that no longer feel connected. And it goes back to that story with the emperor and his clothing. Everybody just assumes that the emperor has clothes on, but it's only the honesty of a little boy that actually speaks to the real problem of that issue. And so with all that being said, take your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our study in the book of Colossians. And I know that there are some of you that are joining us for the first time and others that aren't. I'm going to bear with me as I give a review of the book of Colossians up to this particular point. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae. The Apostle Paul himself had never been to this church. This church was planted by some of his protégés. In other words, people that were converted underneath his ministry. It was planted, and the church was a great church. It was a good church. It wasn't perfect like any church out there. But the Bible says in, in, in first, or Colossians chapter 1 that they were a church that loved God and they loved each other. And so the Apostle Paul commended them for that. To kind of give you a historical background there, the church in Colossae, Colossae itself was a town that I often compare to Chapel Hill. It was a smaller town that was surrounded by Hierapolis and Laodicea, just like Chapel Hill is surrounded by Durham and, and also Raleigh. And so with Chapel Hill being uh, like the way we are, we have all the good things that are happening by these other cities, but we also have a lot of uh, different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds all coming here together, hence the reason why we have multiple different um, religions and denominations. The same thing was happening in Colossae. Colossae became confused in their doctrine. They started focusing on other things and allowing false doctrine and false philosophy to creep into the church like Gnosticism. Gnosticism being the teaching that God isn't bad or God isn't wrong, but they intermixed world philosophies with Gnosticism. And so the church became confused. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church of Colossae to focus and address their issue. And he focused on one particular subject, and that was the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ being Christ has the ultimate say and the ultimate authority. So therefore, everything about our faith rests on Christ only. And so he divides this book into multiple different sections. The first chapter speaks on the doctrine of the preeminence of Christ. The second chapter speaks on the defense of the preeminence of Christ. Now we're in the third and final section of this book, and that is really Paul taking the preeminence of Christ and applying that to our lives from a practical standpoint. And so what we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4 for the remainder of the book is the Apostle Paul taking this subject of the preeminence of Christ and showing us how that applies to our relationship with believers, as we're going to see this morning, our relationship with unbelievers, our relationship with our families. Next week, is just a little trailer, a little teaser for you, we're going to talk about a passage of scripture that is oftentimes taken out of context, and that is a man's relationship with his wife and the submission aspect. What does that really mean? So come back next week and see what the Bible really says about that. Takes the preeminence of Christ and he applies that to our everyday life. 
And so as we discussed last week, verses 1 through 10 focuses on the foundation of our sanctification. Sanctification being us becoming more like Christ, a Christian becoming more like Christ. Now, I, I do want to clarify this because I, I shared this with you last week. There's three different levels of sanctification. you got positional, progressive, and ultimate. Positional sanctification is the moment in which we receive Christ for ourselves. It is the moment in which we repent of our sins and we give our heart and life to Christ. We are now positionally sanctified with God. We are no longer at war with God. Our sin has been taken care of. This passage applies only to those that are positionally sanctified. But this passage is speaking to the work of progressive sanctification. You may say, well, what is that? Well, you think of the word progressive. It's becoming more like something. It is progressive. In other words, it is moving forward. When a person becomes positionally sanctified, they are then enter into a journey of progressive sanctification. It is this journey of becoming more like Christ. And we continue that journey until we reach heaven, until we are united with our glorified body, and we receive ultimate or complete sanctification. There is no more sin. There's no more fallen nature. There's no more corruption in our body. We are completely 100% perfect in a glorified body. And so as we discussed last week, we talked about the foundations of the fact that we are in Christ or the foundations of sanctification. As Colossians continues through the book of uh, or the chapter 3 here, as we approach verses 11 through 17, the Apostle Paul now practically defines, as we discussed last week, the putting off and the putting on principle. He practically defines for us, what does putting on mean? What does putting on mean? So if you can stand with me out of respect of God's Word, and the verses are up on the screen. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in front of you, and one of those seat back pockets there or on that tray in the bottom. You can keep that. Uh, if you do not have one at home, that's our gift to you. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, down to verse 17 says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness, of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and to the Father by Him. At the beginning of the sermon, I've often seen, I mentioned, have often seen where people have become disenchanted regarding the church based upon this premise. The church is no longer relevant to me, and I no longer feel connected to the church. And so they leave. But what we see in this passage this morning is this profound truth. Church isn't about you. Church isn't about you. What we're going to discover in our passage this morning is how the preeminence of Christ defines for us the individual responsibilities of each Christian within the church body. So the title of the message this morning is The Preeminence of Christ as it pertains to the church. Thank you. You may be seated. 
the preeminence of Christ as it pertains to the church. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means called out ones. In fact, it was used, or ecclesia was used in classical Greek to describe an official gathering of legislatures that would legislate on behalf of the people. And so what you would have in the uh, Greek, uh, specifically during the New Testament times, is you would have legislatures, congressmen and congresswomen, that would gather together and they would represent on behalf of the people. They were elected by the general population to, reg- uh, to legislate on their behalf. When you bring this from a spiritual standpoint, you have God who has called out a group of people known as the elect of God to formulate what is referred to as the church in order to legislate the kingdom of God to the world. We are God's ambassadors. So when it comes to the church, there's actually two different aspects to the church. You have the global church or the worldwide church, and that is the body of believers globally. We are part of the body of Christ. And then that manifestation comes through what is referred to as here, the local church. It's the local church in which God manifests, on which we are held accountable, which we serve, and which we administer the legislation to those in our particular community. That's why God plants local churches and so that is the church and so it helps us really as we're diving in here to understand the church and the church being defined as a physical structure in which Christ is the foundation the individual believers comprise of the church and they are often referred to as stones stones the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also, which is in reference to the believers, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is unpacked a little bit deeper in Ephesians chapter 2. Hold your finger here and flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. Don't, don't lose your spot in Colossians, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God, through the spirit what is he saying here he's saying that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles what does that mean the foundation of the apostles is the gospel it is the church that is given here some churches practice uh, tongues and they practice signs and they practice wonders and they and they practice healings we would not hold to that here we would hold to what is referred to as cessationist because we see in the scriptures that that was evident within the apostolic age in order to lay the foundation of the church it was laid by the apostles once you have a foundation laid you don't need another one and so now the church being the, uh, the, 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 what we have here based upon the foundation of the gospel, which was given by the apostles. The Bible says that who is the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And for those of you that have been in construction, the cornerstone is the very centerpiece of that building, in which lines up the entire building itself. If that cornerstone isn't perfect, then the rest of the building is going to fall apart. And that's where we have the importance of the preeminence of Christ when it comes to the church. The church is not about me. It's not about my teachings. It's all about Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. 
And so understanding the context of the church here, going back to Colossians chapter 3, what we see here is Paul defining for us what we as Christians must put on so that we can become more like Christ. Therefore, making the overall body of the church healthy. So what you'll notice is that each one of these virtues, it's in regards to man's relationship with who? Man. William Barclay has an insightful comment on the nature of the virtues. He says, It is most significant to note that every one of these virtues and grace listed has to do with personal relationships between man and man. There's no mention of virtues like efficiency, cleverness, even diligence in industry. Not that these things are not important. But the great basic Christian value are the virtues which govern and set the tone of human relationships. Christianity is community. And so in order for us to grasp the concept here of what the Apostle Paul is, is delivering, we're going to look at this as coming from the standpoint of building a healthy stone. The Bible says that the, the, the overall temple of God is comprised of believers. Those believers are then compared to healthy building blocks. And so our focus here this morning is on developing you as a believer and becoming a healthy building block so that the overall body of Christ can be a healthy temple. And so what we see here in this passage are three elements to a strong building block. Three elements to the strong building block. Paul begins verse 11, before I get to this point here, by reminding the believers of the unity they have because of Christ. We've talked about this multiple times in the book of Romans and the Colossians. Anywhere the gospel is mentioned, Paul makes it absolutely very clear that the gospel is for anyone of any background, of any race, of any ethnicity. Which is why our churches can consist of multiple different ethnicities. Because of the gospel. Where you're unified in Christ. The Apostle Paul says here that where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, bond or free, Christ is all and in all. We are the bride of Christ. Then he continues on and he focuses on these virtues, what I would refer to as the materials. If you were to look at a building block, look at the ones in the wall. Every single building block there is comprised of materials. And so what are the materials in which we as a Christian must maintain? The first thing that he says there in verse 12 is bowels of mercy. You read that and you're like, what is that talking about? And some of your verses may say something like the heart of compassion. The term bowels there is a Hebrew idiom or an expression within the Jewish culture to explain the very seat of the internal organs, which explains the very seat of human emotions. And so the fact that he says there, the bowels of mercy, he's referring to everything about us, which we would say our heart must have a compassion for other people. If our church does not have a compassion for other people and we consist of cliques and people that make us feel good and not look out to other people or our, our, our reasoning is we go to church that is gospelly solid and they're preaching the gospel but we we decide not to go there because people there don't make us feel good we've missed the concept of why we go to church we have to have a heart of compassion for other people we're never going to share the gospel if we don't have a heart of compassion that heart of compassion then is that concrete action or displays itself in a concrete action which is known as number two kindness Kindness there in that list. It's a friendly, helpful spirit. This is actually being concerned for the well-being of others. This is how you feel connected to the church. It's by you being kind. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 
18, verse 24, a man who has friends must what? Be a jerk. No, show himself friendly. Bible is profound. Don't come to church expecting someone to invest in you. Come to church to invest and reach out to someone else. I have often heard people say, I want to go to a church where they have more people, whatever, fill in my age or my age group or more people within my particular lifestyle. And you know what my challenge for that person is? Go find the people in your age group and in your lifestyle and bring them to church. Bring them to church. Because if we have the mindset that I'm going to go to the church and I'm going to sit down right here and I'm going to sing songs, and I'm going to feel uh, the way it feels. And I'm saying you need to go to a church where you're growing, but if it's all about drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and never releasing out, you're not going to grow, and you're missing the concept. We all are missing the concept of the church. So kindness, and then kindness only comes, though, if we have humility. Humility, which is the next one. Genuine humility is this proper estimation of yourself. When you generally think of the word humility, you think of not being prideful, right? Which is absolutely the case. And so therefore, I'm going to be humble. So therefore, I'm not going to think of myself as being too highly than I really am. But there's also a flip side to that. Humility, genuine biblical humility is actually understanding yourself to be what God understands you to be. So I'm going to flip this around a little bit. When we generally think of humility, we think of, okay, I'm going to have this serving spirit, which is great. I'm not going to be too prideful. Therefore, I'm not going to think of myself as being too great to do that or whatever the case may be. Humility can also work on the other end and say, I'm actually not going to serve because I don't feel like I'm qualified or I'm good enough to do that. And so therefore, this is false sense of humility. You met those people, right? I can't do that. I I just, you know, I'm not not good at it. And so therefore, I won't do it unless I'm really good at it. Now you've missed the concept of what God has envisioned for you. Don't think of yourself so lowly, because when we think of ourselves so lowly, in essence, we are actually saying God, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm better than what I really am, and so therefore I'm not going to do anything or I'm going to become depressed because I'm not actually living to the potential of what I believe it to be. When in reality, God says, if you're a Christian, you're my child, I sent my son to die for you, get out there and serve me. So there's a balance there. Being humble is, yes, I'm not going to be prideful, but it's also, even if I'm not good at it, I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to let him do the work, and I'm going to let him do the leading. That is humility. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For I say that though the grace is given to me, that everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but what? To think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Genuine humility is understanding God's purpose for you. That's genuine humility. It's God's purpose for you. You see, next, meekness. This is often translated as gentleness, and some describe this as power under control, and you can use the example of horseback riding, which I do not like at all. Horses are not meant to get on top of. History is wrong. You should not be getting on top of a horse. But if you were to think about it, it, it this is, is a horse is a powerful creature. My wife laughs because she took me, this is a side note, my wife took me horseback riding at her, at her parents' farm. They have like four or five horses, um, which I don't know why. I don't know why people have horses, but they have four or five horses. And uh, she took me horseback riding, and she gave me the one that wasn't tame. You know it wasn't tame. 
And so she started running, and the horse ran to follow the other one. I didn't know what in the world I was doing. So that day, I've never been back on a horse, and I never will. All right, horses, there's a reason why we have cars now. And so if you think about it, you get on the back of a horse, and you try to, uh, horses that are tame, that is power under control. That horse can throw you off in a second and stomp on you, and you can't even walk the rest of your life because that horse has messed you up. A horse being a powerful creature, a person that is on top of that horse has that horse tamed. That's meekness. It is power under control. As someone describes it, it is the willingness to suffer injury or insult without inflicting those same types of hurts to other people. Which brings us to our next one. It's long-suffering. It's patience. It's suffering long. It's the ability to keep pressing forward when the times get tough because it is the supernatural ability to endure injustice and troublesome circumstances because why? You have the faith in a coming relief. Now, if that doesn't apply anymore today than anything else, I don't know what does. You see all the injustice and all the things that are happening today, and we can become disheartened, but we understand this isn't the end of the story. We're going to continue to suffer through this as Christians because we know that there's going to be future for us in heaven, and God has all things under control, and he says bear each other. Bearing each other is putting up with the difficult people in church. Believe it or not, churches have that. They have difficult people. Some of you probably don't even like me, but you're here, so praise the Lord. Bearing one another is is learning how to look past the difficulties to the heart of each person so that you can love them you can care for them and you can take you, you can you can continue to minister to them bearing each other finally he says here comes with forgiveness with forgiveness whenever someone comes to our church and wants to move forward with a membership we always ask their reasoning as to why they left the other church and if it boils down to an offense within the other church that was not handled biblically in other words, you didn't go to that person and take care of it biblically, then we would encourage you to go back and handle that biblically. Because if you can't grant forgiveness there, then it's not going to happen here. Forgiveness has to be a crucial part of the church. And so those right there are all the building materials. And at the end of verse 13, Paul says, If there is anyone that has a quarrel against you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Kind of hard to argue against that. Christ forgave you. He died on the cross for you. So your forgiveness, the grudge that you have is nothing compared to what Christ did for you. So all that's the materials. But Paul knowing how important this is, because you could have all the materials of the blocks together, but unless you have a bonding agent in order, in order for all those materials to stick together, you're going to have a broken, crumbled up, weak block. And so he understanding that gives us the second aspect of a building block, and that is the bond. Look at verse 14. Paul says, and above all these things, what? Put on charity. Above forgiveness, above meekness, above long-suffering, above uh, kindness, above gentleness, above all of that. In other words, beyond all of that, put on love. Put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. You may ask yourself, why is that such a big deal? Because love is what unifies the church. Without love, all you do is have a bunch of people that are just going to church to hear a message without having a relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. You know it well, especially those that have, have perhaps been through marriage counseling. You've, you've heard this verse. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but not of love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The Apostle Paul says that you could have the best speech in the world. You could talk like an angel. 
You can communicate great truths, but unless you have love, all it's going to do is sound like this when you talk to somebody, and that's all they can hear. So you can go up to somebody and you can say, man, I love you with Jesus, but you're messed up and you're a fool and you're an idiot. And you can say that if you love someone and they know that, maybe not exactly like that. But if they don't feel that you love them, they're not going to hear it. All it sounds like is that. So the Apostle Paul says, before you show forgiveness, before you forbear one another, before you show kindness, all of that has to be under the cloak, within the cloak of love. You must show love. The very bond that holds everything together is love. This is what Paul means when he says, which is the bond of perfection. The word perfectness there means spiritual maturity. When love is present within the church, there is harmony and there is unity. And to be honest with you, some commentators are unclear as to whether Paul means that love binds the virtues together or whether love binds the members of the community together. But either way, both makes sense. Without love, all of it falls apart. Without love, all of it falls apart. So then the question then is, how do we maintain this attitude of love, therefore maintaining our entire structure of our particular building block? How do we maintain this? Look at verse 15. Paul says, let the peace of God, what? Rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And to unpack this, we have to understand that there's two aspects to this. There's a peace with God, and then there's the peace of God. You cannot have the peace of God until you first have the peace with God. So you say, what does this peace with God mean? The peace with God means that you now have peace and you're no longer at war with God. The Bible says that because of our sin, we are all born literally at war with God. You can go to church, you can say prayers, you can read the Bible, you can do all of these things. But guess what? You're still fighting against God because of your sin. The issue that you have between you and God hasn't been taken care of because you have not given your life to Christ. And until the time where you recognize that you're a sinner and Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross for your sins, until you recognize that and receive Jesus for yourself, you're going to still be at war with God. But when you do that, guess what? Peace with God. Peace with God. But not everybody that has peace with God has the peace of God. So what do you mean? You can be a Christian and still struggle with stress and anxiety and worry. And some of you may be struggling with that today. The peace of God is allowing the Holy Spirit to reside in your heart, to take full control. It is giving your anxiety, it is giving your worry and your stress up to God. And therefore, the Bible says that when you do so, the peace that passes all understanding will be given to you. That is the peace of God. But there's another thing that Paul commands here. He says, we let the peace of God rule in your heart. Then he goes on to say, and be thankful. Why does he add to this? Be thankful. Because thankfulness is an attitude changer. Thankfulness is the safeguard against grumbling and complaining because both of which can ruin our community. If a church is full of thankless people, then the church is full of self-centered people. When a church is full of self-centered people, then the church will not demonstrate love. And what a church does when they don't demonstrate love is they fail to do the work of God. So what we've discovered so far that in order to be a healthy church, we must build a healthy and strong building block by all these virtues. All of those virtues are then held together by this bond, which is love. But then now you just have your building block. It's just a block. But the Bible says that the church is built by multiple different believers. And so what is this right here? that holds all this together, which leads us to our third point, and that's the mortar. 
What is it that holds all the believers together? That is the mortar. Paul begins verse 16 with a command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The word dwell means to take up residence. We're all to have a church party at our house today. You're all to come over after church. You're welcome to go anywhere in the main floor except for a few different places. Don't go into my closet. Don't go upstairs into the attic. Not because I'm trying to hide anything illegal, but because it's not ready for you to see it yet. So you have, you have welcomeness uh, to my home, but only to a certain extent. And as Christians, we give God our hearts, but only to a certain extent. God, you can have my money. You can have my time on Sundays at 1030. But God, you can't take up residence and dwell in my heart. When the Bible says the word of the Lord dwell in your heart, it means you're giving God full access into the dirty closets of your heart, to those skeletons that are in your heart. And here's the funny thing. I do this myself. We don't give God access to that because we're embarrassed for God to see it. But God already knows. And so instead of wanting God to have access to that, we say, God, not yet, because I need to get this taken care of in my life. But here's the good news about the gospel. You can't take care of it. Only God can fix it. Only God can change those messed up parts of your life. Only God can grant that forgiveness. And so when it comes to this mortar, what holds everything together? You have to allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It is Part of it is becoming filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, you've heard this verse. Often, be not drunk with wine, which is dispensation, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does God compare those two? Because if you've ever been drunk or you've seen somebody that's drunk, every single part of your body is controlled by the alcohol, your speech, your language, your walking, whatever. It's all controlled by that. And so the point that Paul is making here is not directly towards the drinking part. It's, yes, don't be drunk, but instead of being drunk, be filled with the Spirit. Just as alcohol controls your body, allow the Holy Spirit to have access to your thoughts, to your words, to your actions, to your heart. That's the comparison that Paul is making here. Once we allow the word of God to dwell on us richly, then what? We teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. Paul then closes out this section with one final command. Paul says in verse 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God by the Father, by Him. He says, in everything you say and everything you do, do it in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that all things that you do must be consistent with what Jesus does and what Jesus wants. You have to ask yourself, in this decision that I'm about to make, could Jesus put his name on it? Could Jesus put his name on it? That's what it means by doing all things in the name of Jesus. As Christians, we are ambassadors. We represent Christ. So how can we be encouraged by all of this? The church will not be strong if we are not first allowing the Holy Spirit to take control of us. And as I made the comment earlier about church not being about you, I do want to make sure that everybody understands we go to church to grow. But if our mindset is, I'm going to go to church and what I can get out of it without serving other people and ministering to other people, we've missed the point of church. 
Because in our serving other people, we are going to be encouraged. We are going to feel connected. And we are going to grow. So my Christ continued to be the foundation of the chapel here. 